It's good to see you today. <clears throat> it means that you survived what hopefully is the coldest week of the winter uh, last week. I would really love it if, uh, if that's the case, if, if uh, last week is the worst week we have. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever done anything embarrassing? Have you ever done anything embarrassing? Ask your kids, they'll tell you. Um, in my family, we our big holiday is Thanksgiving. I, I've told you that before. And um, sometimes it gets out of hand a little bit. I don't know about you guys when you have family gatherings, but the funny thing about our family gatherings um, is, is when there's a new person, okay? So when one of the kids, the grandkids, um, brings, you know, a, a, a guy or a girl that's very significant in their life for the very first time, and, and we're having Thanksgiving dinner together, um, for some reason, my brothers feel like it's really good to hash out every big mistake that anybody's ever made in their life. See, in my family, it's not the mistake that you made, it's the fact that they can bring it up for decades and decades and decades. Anybody have family like that? It's warped. I, I'm, I'm not kidding you, but I love it. And um, the last really big significant one that I remember is when <clears throat> Benjamin and Amy were either engaged or they were first married, and my brothers thought it was time to update her on all the family dirt. Have you, has anybody ever experienced this before? It's like, hey, there's a new person to entertain. Let's tell them everything we've ever done. And they were, my brothers were going back and forth on each other. And then they realized that they were leaving me out. So then they started trying to dig up stuff on me, which they had a little harder time doing, thankfully, um, because I'm the firstborn. You know, I was the rule keeper, you know. Um, but we've all done... Uh, things that we're probably embarrassed uh, about in our lives. And I want to talk about <clears throat> somebody in Scripture that is, is really, I think with most of us, most of us who are Christians, has a very good reputation, okay? And, and a huge amount of Scripture is dedicated to their life, okay? But today, we're going to look at the fact that this person is an enigma, they're hard to understand. They're very puzzling because on one hand, we know who we feel they are. And on the other hand, we see who, in some cases, who they have been. And so I want to take a look at a man, and I love I, this person's life. I love to read it. I love to, you know, it's just a favorite Bible character of mine. Uh, has some of the greatest victories, but also some of the most epic failures, and up to this point where we jump into the story, things have been going pretty well in his life. Really well, okay? Like as good as they possibly could. In fact, he's a king. And he's 20 years into his reign of a 40-year reign. Things are going really well. And then this happens. And I want to read from 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you haven't guessed it, it's about a man named David. <clears throat> We're not reading about the David, you know, at the time of being a shepherd. It's not even the time of, of Goliath. Uh, it's not even the time when he became king, but it's a little bit later, 20 years into his reign. And here's what we read, starting in verse 2 of 2 Samuel 11. Forgive me, it's a longer portion of Scripture. I normally don't do this, but it really tells the story well, and let's just let the context of the Bible speak for us. So one evening... David got up from his bed 
and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and slept, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Joab is the general of the army. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem after that or that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a note to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite fell. Joab sent a full account. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. David was an enigma. He was puzzling. It's very hard for us to understand that a man after God's own heart could do such a thing as this. I want to sort of look through uh, David's experience here and glean some things for, uh, for us today. And the first thing I want to look at is that process is, or temptation rather, is a process. David had every opportunity to stop. Nobody forced David to do what he did. He could have stopped at any time. In fact, I would say to you that really there were four steps in this process of the initial sin. Beyond that, there's lots more steps, but the initial sin, there was four steps. Let me just review them with you. The first step is this, that he simply saw. He simply saw. 
And sometimes, let's just be honest, we see things and there's really not much that we can do about it. We weren't looking for it. We weren't in the place where we expected it. But sometimes we just see things. And that certainly is what happened to David at the very least, that he saw something. Secondly, he sent to find out more about her. This is where it starts to get tricky. And I'll bet you if we could have interviewed David at that time, he probably would say, well, I haven't actually done anything yet. I'm just learning more about her. I mean, after all, I'm the king, aren't I? I can do that if I want to do it. I haven't actually, though, done anything. Then we find out that he takes another step. And friends, I want you to understand that denial is a dangerous river for us to swim in. But he takes a third step, and he sends to get her. The information that he got from his man about who she was did not dissuade him in any way, shape, or form. The fact that she was married to another man did not stop him from continuing to move forward in this process. I believe that Bathsheba in David's life was simply an issue of lust and power. He said, I see it, I want it, and I have the power to be able to get it for myself. I think that what David was doing was kicking down every obstacle that was in his way, every roadblock. And you know what? In our lives, God sets up roadblocks. When we're headed for sin, through the Holy Spirit, God sets up roadblocks. Maybe they're situational roadblocks. Maybe sometimes it's just a, a feeling that you get in your heart. The Bible says that the, the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And sometimes when we're headed for sin, the Holy Spirit simply speaks to our heart. We call it conviction. It's something that we feel, something that we cannot explain. We just know that we're headed down the wrong road. And sometimes, like David, we decide to kick down every roadblock that God puts in our way. James, in chapter 1 of his uh, letter, he writes in verses 14 and 15, he said, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. There is a process that happens that leads us to a place of sin. And James tells us that each person, every single one of us, we're all tempted. We're all going to, we're all going to see things. There's all, there, and it doesn't mean that we were looking for it, but we will be tempted. He also says that enticement won't work on us without desire. We've all been born with a sinful nature. He said that that once that, that evil desire entices us and, and, des, and, and it, the, the desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. He's literally talking about being dragged away the way a fish is drawn to a bait. If you like to fish, you know that some days it's all about the presentation 
Some days it's all about the color. But you know that if you're going to catch fish that day, you better keep changing it up until you find what those fish are looking for. You are looking to entice them. That is exactly the picture of what the enemy is doing for you and for me. The Bible says that... that um, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I get this right. I didn't have this in my notes. But um, there's no weapon that's fashioned against us that will prosper. What that means is that the enemy, the enemy is really, he's a fisherman. And he, he's creating baits that he thinks are going to entice you and entice me. And, and David was enticed. He was enticed to sin. He was drug away. And sin in our lives starts small. But what James is telling us is that when sin becomes full grown, it ultimately leads to spiritual death. But there's good news that I want you to know about. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has take, overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God has provided a way for us to get out of that temptation. The problem is sometimes we're like David and we just keep kicking over the roadblocks. <clears throat> and when we see that off ramp, we just simply say, I don't want to take it. I'd rather keep going the direction that I'm going. Secondly, sometimes we just get good at the art of swallowing a camel. Now you might wonder, what in the world does that mean? I'll explain it in a minute. But let me start with this. Has anybody told you the joke, how do you eat an elephant? Do you know how to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. It all starts with one bite. In 2 Samuel 11, our, our text, verse 4, the second half, it says, and forgive me, um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to uh, prolong this, but it says that, that Bathsheba was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Now, there's several possibilities of what this means, and it goes on and it says, then, then she went home. So why would, why would the writer include that parenthetical statement about what she was doing? So I began to look into it, and there's several possibilities, but uh, when I looked at one of the commentaries that I, that I usually look to, it's called Ellicott's, um, I, I, I started digging into some stuff, and it was pretty interesting. And the first thing that, that it did is it reminded me of something that even though I, I've read it, I, I didn't, I, it certainly wasn't top of mind. But in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, the Levitical law says that when someone uh, has intercourse, they remain ceremonially. Now we got to remember that this is under the old covenant, so don't go home and, and this is not under the new covenant. But when someone has intercourse with their spouse, they remain unclean ceremonially until dark. So they can't just go into the temple and worship because they're ceremonially unclean. They would have to wait until after dark in order to be considered ceremonially clean. 
And what uh, Ellicott is saying is that, that Bathsheba would not have simply left the palace during the day, that she would have waited until evening so that she would then be ceremonially clean. What she was doing was she was paying attention to the law, Leviticus chapter 20, verse, or the, the, uh, the Leviticus 15 that I read earlier about waiting until dark, but ignoring another part of the law, both she and David, from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, that says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So they're trying to look like they're obeying this small part of the law, that you're ceremonially unclean until after dark. So she waited until after dark to leave the palace, but like they don't care about the fact that they just committed adultery, or at least that David didn't care about that fact. Concerned with being seen as keeping the law while actually being guilty of breaking it. This was punishment. The, the, the punishment for that was literally death for adultery. But you know what? It's really consistent with us as people because the scripture says that God looks at the inward part of us, but man always looks at the outward appearance. We're always concerned about appearance, how we look in a certain situation rather than how we actually are. Jesus has a conversation in Matthew chapter 23 with the Pharisees, and he refers to them as hypocrites. Here's what he says in Matthew 23, starting at verse 23. He said, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. This is what I'm talking about when I said that earlier. What the, the Pharisees would do is they would, they would go to their garden and they would harvest their garden and they would take the harvest from the garden and they would divide it out and they would take a tenth of it and they would tithe on that part of their garden because they wanted to appear spiritual. And Jesus said, but you're ignoring things like mercy. You're ignoring things like faithfulness. You're ignoring things like justice. Jesus said that they were hypocrites because they wanted to obey this one small part of the law, but they completely disregarded and disobeyed this much more important, larger part of the law. And he refers to them as being hypocrites. In fact, he describes them as whitewashed tombs that are full of dead men's bones. And what he means by that is in Palestine, they would bury their dead in caves and they would roll a stone in front of it, just like Jesus. And to identify those caves, they would whitewash them to make them look nice and pretty. But inside, they were filled with rotting corpses. 
Jesus defines the hypocrisy of the Pharisees exactly that way. You look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's all stinky death. And that's what sin does to us. So let me ask you this question. What camel are you swallowing? Or you might be really paying attention to this one small part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We might really want to get that right. But what camel are we swallowing? We're, we're going to take this, this small thing. We're going to make sure I don't do that. But what's the big thing? What's the camel that we're swallowing in our lives that we need to actually be paying attention to? Jesus uh, tells his followers in Luke chapter 6, I'm not going to read the whole scripture there, but he says, you know what? Take the speck out of your own eye before you worry about the plank in your brother or sister's eye. And he refers to those being, as being hypocritical when they fail to do so. We're hypocritical when we fail to deal with our sin first. David did not deal with his own sin. And one of the consequences is that God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David regarding his sin. Number three, we'll do anything for love, won't we? Right? I don't know about you, but as I've looked at the story of David and Bathsheba, you know, you can be tempted to think that it's, it's a love story. Okay? It's not a love story. In fact, there's nowhere that we read that David really loved her. We'd all, we read that he was attracted to her. We read that eventually he married her. We read that she became the mother of Solomon, who became the next king after David. But this was not a love story, okay? That's not what we read. What it really... And, and the reason that I think that we kind of, and, and I'm surmising here, but maybe we want it to feel like it's a love story is because it helps resolve the enigma that David was. Because this guy, the guy that, that, that kept the sheep, the guy that wrote the 23rd Psalm, the guy that, that killed Goliath, the guy that God said is a man after God's own heart, we have a hard time imagining how he could do this. David had no intention, I believe, of ever furthering the relationship with Bathsheba. She goes back to her home, and the next time that David hears about her is when she's pregnant. And he gets that call. He gets that message from her. You know, as I studied this portion of scripture, I've always had this feeling that David is, we're talking about the most powerful man, um, I, I won't say in the world at that time, but certainly in that part of the world, he would have been the most powerful man. And as a woman in that culture, she was powerless. So you have the most powerful and, the, and, and one of the most powerless and, and it's, not, it's not equal ground. There's no way that that relationship could have been equal. And she had no ability to stand up 
on her own. And I've, I've read some commentaries that actually use the phrase power rape to describe the relationship between David and Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel, our text, chapter 11, it says that the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent his word to, this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. So David starts to, he starts to act, but it's only after he gets this news. I'm wondering how many weeks have gone by since David has seen her? I asked, you know, the closest females that I could find. I said, how, how, you know, I mean, if we didn't have technology today, how long are we talking about? Three, four weeks? Doctor, or three, four weeks? You know, I mean, ladies, are, three or four weeks, maybe you would know. Maybe it would take a little longer than that. But obviously, David has not had communication with her during that time. She's now letting him know that she is pregnant. And... David, his goal is to keep his own sin quiet, so he acts now on this information because the pregnancy threatens to reveal his sin. Sometimes I think we prefer to think it was just a love story. David already had queens. He already had concubines. The prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 8, when he confronts uh, David with his sin, um, he says, listen, God would have given you even more if you would wanted. Why did you do this? He would have, you know, you already had your, your, your master Saul's, uh, you know, concubines and wives. God would have given you more. Why did you do this thing before him? David wasn't acting out of love. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Even a man after God's own heart. Number four, is it worth losing your friends? David begins this cover-up plan, and I'm not going to go into it too much. Um, we read it in our text, but David begins this cover-up plan. He sends for Uriah. Um, all of his scheming doesn't work, and so he finally says, okay, I'm going to play hardball, and he sends a note. Imagine this, writing a note, sealing it, giving it to the messenger to give to the general, and the message is kill the messenger. <laughs> kill the guy that brings you this message. But that's exactly what David did. David sent a message to Joab and said, I want this guy taken out. And that's exactly what Joab does. He has Uriah taken out. <clears throat> and here's the thing that really strikes me. Because I, a, a, several weeks ago, in my, own, uh, in my own time with the Lord, I was reading again through David's life. And you get to the end of his life, and there's, there's a segment of the chapter about David's mighty men. And these are men that have been with David since the cave of Adullam days. These are the guys that he has fought with. These are the guys that he has suffered with. These are the guys that are in the cave with him when King Saul comes in and he cuts off the corner of King Saul's robe in the dark. These are the guys that have been mercenaries with him. 
These are, these are the closest people to him, the 30 mighty men. And you read that list of these men that David has fought with and bled with for the last 20 plus years. And you get to the bottom of that list and it says Uriah the Hittite. Uriah wasn't just any soldier. Uriah was one of his best. Someone that he was so close to. And yet this man, who was a man after God's own heart, had the ability to betray his friend and one of his best soldiers. He betrayed him and he had him killed. That is the extent to which our sin can take us. That will even betray a close friend. I've got good news though too. David did repent. God confronted him. He did it through the prophet Nathan. I referred to it. We read in Psalm 51, David's prayer, verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. David is asking God to forgive him for his sin. The sin of adultery, the sin of murder, the sin of coveting another man's wife, the sin of lying. Do you realize that David committed sin? He broke four commandments in this one chapter. He coveted, he lied, he, had a, he committed adultery and murder all in one chapter. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty strong day as far as sin goes, isn't it? I mean, when you really think about it. And in David's day, man, the, the law of Moses was it, okay? They didn't have what we have in the New Testament. But I'm so glad that David did repent. He said in Psalm 51, 10, 11, and 12, Create in me a, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Friends, it is so wonderful to know that God forgives us of our sin, even the worst sin that we've ever committed. I have sat in a county jail uh, waiting area or, a, or, a, or a, a viewing area where you can talk to prisoners and had someone say to me, God could never forgive me. You don't know what I've done. But I see that nowhere in Scripture. I don't see that. God forgives Sin has consequence. It certainly does. And the consequence for David's sin, God said is the son that, that she is uh, pregnant with, the son that's going to be born to you, that child is going to die. That was the consequence. My sin and your sin, we have consequence. God forgives us. He restores us, but he doesn't take away the consequence for that sin. So today, as we close our service, I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. And in this final moment, maybe there are some camels that you've been swallowing lately. Some sin in your life that is yet to be 
forgiven and restored. And maybe you've even felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit knocking on your door that's been reminding you of this and encouraging you to seek God's forgiveness. So before we close, if that's you, and you say, Kevin, I really want to have my sin forgiven. I just want to invite you. I'm going to start on your right, my far left. If that's you, just look me in the face so that I can be praying for you, pray with you, and be asking God to move in your life. But if that's you, just, just look up at me. Yes, I'm coming, yep, this way. I'm coming over to my right now, over in this area, if that's you. Thank you. Father, you see these this morning that their prayer is, God, that you would forgive me. Their prayer is a prayer of repentance. Father, I pray that even now, that in their hearts, they will just simply say, God, I know that I have sinned. Forgive me of that sin. Your word says that you'll forgive me and you'll restore me. So I confess that sin to you right now. God, I thank you that you are still forgiving. You are still restoring. And Lord, we realize that there is consequence for our sin. And we know, Lord, that you're going to walk us through that consequence. But Father, I pray that we will leave here today knowing that we have been forgiven, knowing, Lord, that our sin, though it was red as scarlet, will be washed white as snow. Father, I thank you. I thank you because you are a God that forgives. You are a God who shows mercy, who shows grace, who has grace, who extends grace to us. Father, I thank you and I praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.